Welcome to FinTech What the Heck. I'm your host, Andrew Carpenter. This is the podcast all about FinTech and the future of data. Today, I'll be talking about the essential data that FinTech startups need and interviewing Intrinio sales engineer Alec Isaac about bridging the gap between sales and engineering. I'm going to ramble today about essential data for fintech startups. And uh, before I dive into that, I'm going to f- let me frame it a little bit. So there are lots of different types of fintechs out there. There are fintechs in the banking space, um, fintechs in lending. Um, they're all over the place and they do all kinds of things. And I um, tend to think about fintechs as being investment focused because that's what I do. And that's what Intrinio does is we help uh, provide financial data uh, to fintechs that they're building into applications. So I'm a little bit biased um, and I'll just get out there and admit that like if you're a banking fintech, um, there might be some different data sets that are essential for your startup um, than what I'm going to talk about today. So I'm talking about data that fintech startups need. And um, that specifically, the fintechs that are working in the investment space. And so the most, uh, there's there's basically the most common thing that we see, and we, we have thousand clients have had, you know, and worked with thousands and thousands of these fintech startups, is that they almost always have a secret sauce. Like you can go out and recreate Yahoo Finance. Great. You know, maybe you'll do a little bit better, but you're not going to displace Yahoo Finance or make a lot of money. Um, you need to do something different and special. And most of the fintech founders that I speak with, you'll you meet some of them on this show. We talk to dozens of them every week. They know something. Maybe they have an algorithm or a way of an analyzing a portfolio or risk or an idea for something special. And that's cool. Nobody else has it. It's very unique to them. And um, the kind of data that is needed for that special thing is probably going to be custom. Uh, whatever it is, maybe um, you have to go out and source it and find it. And we've been amazed at some of the things that are our clients have created over the years and they're using that special sauce to differentiate themselves. And I can't really anticipate what that is because if I knew it and everybody else knew it, there would be nothing really special about that fintech startup. So they go out and they build this special thing. And then immediately what happens once they get some traction and people are like, oh yeah, I can get this certain piece of information from your app that I can't get anywhere else. Or maybe it's a social um, a tool that nobody else has. Um, and it's, it's great. Okay. Well now you need to increase engagement, um, and get people to stay on your platform for more than just that reason to give them a reason to come more often to, um, use your tools, maybe to buy something. And so you, um, as soon as you have in the, in the financial investing research space, that special secret tool available, now you need to add all the other research that goes into trading, um, and building portfolios and investing. And most of the trend in the last year has been around building these research tools. And we talked about that, um, with Yuli on the podcast recently is that we want to get, everybody's trying to get these professional grade tools into the hands of investors. So if you want 
your platform to speak to the everyday investor beyond just your secret sauce. You want them to come and learn and do more research. What are the types of data that you're going to end up adding to your platform? So um, let me just run through a list of these general ideas of data that you're going to want to add. Um, and usually what's happening is they're added along with your secret sauce to give more information, more context, more about what it is that you're teaching your users, the information they came to get, what they came to learn about, the research they came to do. So the first thing I'll mention is um, stock prices. This is super ubiquitous. Like everybody who's investing, everybody who's a retail trader needs to know stock prices. It's pretty much across the board. And we have a whole uh, section on the podcast in an earlier episode dedicated to that. So check that out. But this is just like the what the cost of a stock is today. Is it up? Is it down? And um, you can get that data from Intrinio or any number of exchanges. So I suggest you check out that podcast. But the most frequent data set that we get asked for at Intrinio and that um, almost every investing site has is stock prices. It's a very complicated thing. But at the end of the day, it's just if I'm doing research into a company that I'm considering buying, um, and the same is true for ETFs. ETFs have a price attached to them. Um, you're going to want to display how much that is up, how much it's down. Uh, it's a historical trend. Usually folks put a graph. You can do a candlestick chart. Anything so that an investor can say, all right, what is the stock price right now? What was it yesterday? What was it a year ago? Can I see a graph? Is it up? Is it down? Um, and that is like the first thing that folks will try to add is because it's updating all the time. It gives the user a reason to come back to your platform and it gives them that context for um Context for like, is this a good investment to make or not? Now, I'll, I'll, I mentioned ETFs, so you got to have ETF prices. That's basically included in market data with stock prices. Um, but you might also be interested in mutual funds. That has been getting smaller, but it's still many, many billions of dollars of mutual funds are held in folks' portfolios, and those have net asset values. Um, and then I'll give an honorable mention to crypto. Um, and Trinio's provided crypto over the years, and then it kind of waned, and now it's back. All of a sudden, everybody wants crypto in their portfolio. So um, that can be a really nice way to differentiate yourself as well. After you have stock prices, the most um, important data set that a fintech startup needs are fundamentals. They're called fundamentals because they are that important. Um, they're essential. They're fundamental. These are um, the balance sheets, income statements, and statements of cash flows from the publicly traded companies that um, your users are doing research on. So once you get the stock price, and maybe you've applied your special algorithm and given some unique information... Um, to do due diligence and research into a company, you want to know um, what their earnings were. What were their expenses? How many employees do they have? You want to be able to see that stuff over time um, historically. And that all comes is mandated in the United States to be filed with the SEC. And I actually had a call today with a stock exchange in another country where um, that kind of data isn't mandated to be collected. And it actually poses a big problem um, because if you don't have fundamentals, you um, you really don't know the health or strength of a business. And the SEC mandates that, that be reported quarterly by public companies um, just to give investors insight and a source of truth that the companies are held um, to the fire. They're liable to make sure that they are reporting fundamentals accurately. They get a lot of trouble if they're not accurate. And it serves as a starting point for basically any research, any analysis into invest the investing world. So you've got to have fundamentals. 
The next thing that I would recommend having in your platform, we get asked for this all the time, are forward estimates of earnings. And these are important because um, they're kind of magical. If uh, The idea behind them is magical. They don't always work. But the idea is that um, you need to be able to know in order to decide if something is a good investment, where are the earnings of that company heading? Are they um, about to go out of business? Maybe they're going to get regulated into non-existent non-existence. And so if we know that there's a cliff coming for their earnings, well, that definitely influences our um, analysis of that company as a potential investment. Companies that we're partnered with, like Zacks, provide, um, they they poll analysts, professionals, people who do investment work for a living, and they get information and reports from them um, asking them, where are the earnings heading for this company? Up, down, flat, um, and there's a lot of different flavors that can be provided and we can provide that data. Lots of other companies can provide that data as well. Um, notably tip ranks. Um, they provide these forward estimates of earnings. And if you know anything about finance, you've had any kind of training, you'll know that the most popular way, um, or one of the most popular ways to value traditionally a stock is called a discounted cash flow analysis, DCF. And that requires some estimate of forward earnings. Your, your users are going to guess at that, you know, they're trying to figure out, do the research, um, where that stock is heading, um, based on its earnings. But, um, usually you want to provide them with some professional estimates as well. So another important data set for startups, um, in the portfolio analysis or research space, definitely want to have estimates. The next one, um, and this goes probably beyond the, the world of investing in finance is news, news about companies. Um, this one, um, is incredibly important because news is highly engaging. It's relevant. It updates all the time and it gives people a reason to come to your platform and get that secret sauce and all this other research that you can provide them. And it gives them a reason to come more often. You know, like, was there a press release about a company in my portfolio? Um, what about this company that I'm, you know, researching that I might want to buy? do they have any recently released news that I could read and maybe learn more about that investment? And news is tricky to provide from a financial standpoint. And the main reason that news is tricky is that when a news story breaks, it's not always tagged conveniently with the ticker that the news story is about with the security identifier that it, that your users are using to search. Say they're looking for Apple. Well, Apple has lots of different tickers, AAPL, but also trades under different tickers internationally. And if a news story breaks, they're probably going to write A-P-P-L-E, the word. And so filtering news to get the right news about that stock is challenging. And Intranio again works with partners like Naviga that provide that data um, and allow you to, um, on the back end, say, give me only news about companies in this user's portfolio so that they have something to read and they don't have to go out and, you know, scour the internet looking for information. When that information is released basically anywhere, we can alert them and send that to them. And that creates all kinds of beautiful push notifications and alerts that can be created around news. Um, and news goes beyond finance. I mean, everybody, um, pretty much every fintech platform has some good use for news. So the last thing I'll mention then is options data. Um, and it's not essential if you're not an options platform, but um, if you're running a business and you want to make money, options is a good way to do it for businesses. We've mentioned this before quite a bit of 
Robinhood's revenue comes from options because they allow you to trade stocks for free. Um, and why do we know that? Because we can read Robinhood's financial statements and we can read their disclosures, which is part of that fundamental data. Uh, we know that they're making a lot of money off of options and options is extremely popular and growing among retail traders. So if you're looking for a way to monetize your platform, options can be a real moneymaker. So in my opinion, some of the most fundamental data sets for fintech startups in the financial analysis and research space are stock prices and other market data, possibly crypto, fundamentals, estimates of earnings, news, and options. My Intrinio guest today is Alec Isaac. He's a sales engineer at Intrinio. Welcome to the podcast, Alec. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, our pleasure. Um, why don't you get us started and just tell us uh, about your personal background and how you came to work at Intrinio? So personal background, I had just finished up law school. And um, during law school, I was dabbling with data, finance, et cetera, really just trying to see what I enjoyed outside of law. And um, that's to say, heard from a great person in there, there's no better place to find what you want to do than going to law school. No one's going to give you grief for going to law school, right? Oh, he's in law school. So I pretty much went there, found where I wanted to do, and um, I ended up linking with Intrinio after graduation as a sales engineer. You came actually with a legal background, and now you're a sales engineer. Can For our audience who might not even really know what a sales engineer is, can you talk a little bit about what exactly that is for you? Sales engineer really, I mean, there's like solutions engineer I've been labeled as, et cetera. It's just a, a jack of all and a master of maybe one if you're lucky. Um, but really, it's melding the... DevOps, dev, and sales and customer success all into one role and just trying to balance everything equally, making sure your customers are happy, they're able to get going on their foot, um, relaying those requirements back to dev of what might make their lives easier. That kind of falls in with customer success, really. So it's just a very, it's a feedback loop of sorts, right? Where you're getting to work with the customer, getting that feedback. Then you're trying to help them and say, oh, well, while I'm helping you, you know, I think our engineering team can do X, Y, and Z. That'll help a lot of people, right? So it's trying to take one person's issue, fixing it, and then having it generalized across a lot of people. So just really trying to help people. So you're pulling, you're, you're doing the sales engineer role, but you're also pulling insights out from what those prospects or customers are asking for to make the whole platform better. Absolutely. That's, and that's what I really love about it because it kind of then molds into that product space where it's like, hey, we could use this new feature. Hey, we could use this new data, right? And you get that great kind of feel for what your customers want, what the market wants. And that's just really our job at Intrinio, you know, is just providing that data, allowing people to really explore, experiment, and uh, make the best they can. So Intrinio is a financial data company. So like there's sales engineers at all kinds of companies, but like, can you tell people like an example of like, say a customer comes to Intrinio and they're looking for data. Like what are the kinds of things that you would help them with? Like how do you help them get access to that data? So with, depending on what data they're looking at, let's say it's fundamental. It's usually around like, okay, how can I ingest your data? How can I make sure it's fresh for my users? Um, how do I navigate, you know, the API, 
any sort of limitations on it, really just showing them the best practices to embed it on their site, get it in front of their users, and um, allow their users to have a great experience on their site. That's really it at the end of the day, is just making sure that end user has a good experience and using our own data. So you're you're con- you're connecting with developers primarily who are going to test or use the product and so they've got probably like more technical questions than the sales team can handle sometimes. That sounds about right. Usually it runs the gamut of the spectrum of like, you know, we get devs on there who, you know, will whoosh over my head sometimes, right? They're using a stack I'm not familiar with. Um and that's when it's nice to be able to kind of break it down for the engineers like when I have questions, right? Cuz I'm I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. Right. So it's like, okay, let me get these nice and lined up for our engineering team, see what the response is, and then I'll facilitate that moving forward. But really it's kind of that first line of defense where it's like, oh, they have these questions. I've heard that question, you know, a hundred times. Right. And so I can definitely help you there. And then also if it's something where I'm like, maybe this is something we can fix internally, let's not hear it anymore. We'll make that change in our back end, Right. And then we can serve it up and say, oh, we won't get that question anymore, right? Because it's just been fixed or, you know, adjusted per se. Yeah. You've got to use a lot of judgment, I think, to say like, this is something that I can fix for this customer, or maybe it's something we can't do, or maybe this is something that I can fix for all the customers. So you're kind of sitting in between the customer and the dev team to to make those choices to help the, to help everybody keep moving. Exactly. It's like the guy from Office Space, right? I'm, I'm just a people person, you know, I, I take the requirements from the customers and I go to the engineers, you know, um, that's, that's really, that's really it. Uh, in this case, no. So I feel a little bit higher than him, you know, but, uh, yeah, I guess I, I do those by myself. Right. But I don't actually walk, you know, I still thankfully we're remote, you know, so it's just like, boop, boop. Um, but yeah, that's really how I feel like sometimes. Yeah. Do so. Are you you're on a lot of calls with customers? Like, is that how your your primary mode of communicating was? Like, the sales team brings you in, and like, when in the sales process do they bring you in to talk to that customer? Is it like in the middle, the beginning, the end, all of the above? All of the above, probably. It really depends on how that process is moving, um, where their questions are. Like, they know this is the data they want. They just want to be sure they can use it in X, Y, Z way. That's I'll definitely get on a call with them. Um, calls are always easier than emails in every sense, right? Like, it's emails are great for following up, but I love to be on a call because that's where I can take down the notes, get everything going, and say, okay, here's where here's what they need. We can do X, Y, and Z. Let me, let me see about Q. Uh, that's not the order, but like, let's just balance it around. And so that's really where I come in. Whenever the sales needs me, um, just they drop me a line and we go from there. Yeah. And like, so these customers that you talk to, they want to connect to data, right? They're going to pull it in on their end. How do they connect? Like, what are the access methods that you see most customers preferring? Typically, it's through our API. Um, it's just straight, just requests through those endpoints. Um, we do get a lot of use with the SDKs. Um, JavaScript's actually a really popular one, our JavaScript SDK, um, more so than Python, surprisingly, even though a lot of our clients are using Python. Um, but what's really kind of started taking hold is Snowflake. Uh, we have that Snowflake database access. And so it's just a lot of these clients who are doing big-time queries will just be able to pull it right from there. I don't have to worry about rate limits. I don't have to worry about anything. Um, the database just updated from us. So I think that's really kind of catching on where people are just pulling straight from Snowflake. 
Yeah, it's like the easiest thing for a developer. Like, if you can give them API access, great. If you can give them SQL queries against the database directly, that's even better. Do you think that that kind of direct database connection is going to, like, spread, like, I've heard people asking for Amazon access, like through an S3 bucket. Um, do you think that's the way data will be delivered in the future? I think so. I think it's already super popular. Um, you know, as more and more financial data keeps coming out, all these new sources, right, just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You're seeing all these data warehouses coming up, these data lakes. I think that's where it's going to end up is people are just going to dump it into some sort of data, large data storage, and just pull directly from there. Um, that way they can really kind of make those queries as complex or as simple as they want. Um, they're not bound by an API, even though we have so many, it's always nice to kind of have that flexibility and the ability just to, you know, let us do the updating. It's always going to be updated, pulled directly from there. That's, uh, that's pretty easy going. Yeah, it's funny because five, six years ago, I was so excited about API delivery. I was like, yep, this is the way of the future. And then it, and then people would take it via API and then put it back in the cloud. So they would like pull it down and, and get like an S, a CSV, put it in the exact same format it is in our database and just move it to their database. And so I, I agree. I think that people are just going to kind of cut out the API layer unless it's streaming. I mean, that seems to be the case. Yeah. And I mean, it'll always be there for like quick jobs, you know, like if you just need just these forms of data, right? Like you don't need to go through the entire piece of making your own queries and everything. You're just going to, you know, hook up the API and away we go. Right. So I think it's always in a matter of like how complex does the user want to get, right? Do you think it used it even before that 10, 15 years ago is all FTP transfers, which are, you know, do you see anybody asking for FTP transfer anymore? Is that something that people ask for? We don't, thankfully. I mean, CSV is still popular. I'm seeing Excel kind of slowly but surely coming around, especially, um, you know, younger clients, et cetera, right? They're looking for the APIs because they're just going to be able to manipulate it, you know, with Python, et cetera, right? It's, I'm seeing that kind of trend going around, but Excel is so powerful. It's so strong and, and so prevalent, right? Like, I think over time, like the FTP will kind of disappear, the Excel will kind of really go away, but still probably a long way from there, just because it's so prevalent. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of time. There's a lot of inertia behind those delivery mechanisms. So do you, you do think more and more people are learning Python or like other coding languages and kind of replacing that Excel user? That Do you think that's what's happening? I think so. I think it'll always have a place because it's great to kind of display and get a feel for the data. But I, I mean, I, and I guess that I couldn't see it ever really going away. But I know like Google Sheets, Google, um, all of that's kind of like popping up more and more, right? So just different flavors of the same. But I do see a lot of our users really kind of cranking it through Python, data frames, you know, just really gives you a lot more, once again, flexibility to manipulate. And I think it's that flexibility that people are enjoying having, um, you know, too much gets you in trouble, but it's nice when you can find, you know, 10 different ways to do a thing. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about options data for a second. So like if you read the newspaper, you read about options recently, it's just been a huge craze of talking about a lot of retail traders getting into options. Do you, do you feel a lot of questions from uh, people looking for options data? We do. That's honestly probably been one of the more popular um, data points people are looking for is that options data. And 
all types, flavors. Um, you know, this is from retail users looking to pull end of day to track things. And then also like institutional grade where they're looking for that granular snapshot. And so options is definitely taking its hold on the public and everyone. Um, and even in the markets, it seems like, you know, the, the tail is wagging the dog sometimes where options will rip underlying has to kind of catch up, et cetera. Um, it's, it's crazy time. Yeah. What, what are the challenges for people that are trying to get that data? I mean, I, th- it's a, it's a very different animal than equities data, I'm sure. So like, how do you coach somebody or like, what kind of questions do they have? What are the, the stumbling blocks when you're trying to pull down a data set like that? The really, the big ones are, you can kind of, um, they'll want to see the Greeks and the volatility with every piece. Um, some providers out there only just have that kind of like end of day price. And that's up to the user then to kind of use black shoals, calculate all of that out. Um, that's where I think it, a lot of people breathe a sigh of relief with ours where they see they got the Greeks, the IV, they got the, um, you know, open high lows, close, all of that data kind of coming through. And we offer it not only in the API, but the web socket. And so people who are really trying to, not so much high frequency, but a little more. They want that constant flow. Um, they see that and they're like, wow, that's a lot of data. I mean, it's it's a huge market, million plus, million and a half contracts a day moving through. Um, and for them to try and capture that data and make sense of it, we provide it in a great format. So I think that's really where users are happy. Yeah. So the challenges that they brought to you probably in the past were like, Hey, we want you to calculate implied volatility. We, the Greeks, you know, like these are those, that feedback loop you were talking about earlier, like that you told the the development team, like, Hey, this is something we can take off the plate of these users and, and make their life a little bit easier. Exactly. Exactly. That was part of it. And the unusual options, that's our latest feed. I mean, that's just really kind of blown up where we've gotten a lot of requests for, you know, can we track it? Can you track it and deliver it to us in API? Um, And we ended up, we were able to kind of track it, build it and throw it through an API. And it's really kind of taken off where those users who wanted that ability to track large trades that are going on in the markets um, now have it at a click of a button. So very easy to do. Can you talk a little bit more about unusual options? I bet, I mean, six months ago, I probably, I had no clue what unusual options were. I bet a lot of people haven't heard of it before. Like what is, what is that? What is that? What's unusual about it? Uh, what's unusual really is just the sizing. So, um, you know, the main two you'll see are the blocks and the sweeps. The blocks are just those very large trades in one unit, like a block order going through the system. And a sweep is um, someone's throwing an order against every option exchange out there, and they're trying to get filled on every one possible up to X dollar amount. Um, and so that'll really kind of, uh, when you pick that up, it's like, okay, this person depending on where it's asked, bid, ask, sell, buy, et cetera, um, you can see, okay, they're bullish or they're bearish on this um, kind of movement. You get a little insight to it, but it's really great as a supplementary source because you really never know what direction they're going in, right? Are they hedging a play? Are they, you know, adding on to a play? It's kind of, um, it's great as a starting point, like a great base, like, okay, there's a lot of unusual option here. Like, let me look into it. And that's kind of what we always tell, you know, when people are looking for it, like, look, we don't predict the future, but this data is a great place to start, you know, like get you going there, get a feel for it and make those decisions. Yeah. So, 
like you're dealing with um, businesses that are coming looking for data, like options data or market data or fundamentals or whatever it happens to be. They're trying to get connected, trying to get the data. And then that's not the end goal for them. It's not just to like get a hold of the data. They're going to go off and do something else with it, right? So like what kind of stuff are, are your, your customers trying to achieve? Like what are you enabling for them? For the most part, especially with the fintech companies, it's enabling them to, you know, everyone's trying to assist the retail trader now and get them on the same level, same ball field um, as everyone else in the markets, right? And so for them, it's really like we come across some very novel ideas of, you know, hey, like unusual options, right? This is a very confusing sphere, right? We're going to take your data and we're going to break it down in these easily digestible kind of content bites, right? Where They'll break through everything I just said into even further detail and really help their users understand, like, here's what this data is used for. You know, here's what X is used for, right? Just really allowing them to kind of look through all this data and see, like, okay, I should be doing X, Y, or Z with it. Um, That's really, at the end of the day, it's they're making it so that other people can make the best investment decisions possible. That makes a lot of sense. What... what and and what are the the what are these retail traders competing against? I mean, it's, it's a, a professional trader who's just got a huge budget for some custom built terminal. Is that who they're up against, really? I mean, at the end of the day, absolutely. It's it's really just um, you know you're going up against millions, billions sometimes in funding, right? And that research, you have to kind of play in your ballpark. Um, and I, I think for myself as an individual user, the only thing I have going for me is I don't have a mandate. I don't need to stick to, you know, growth, value, et cetera, momentum. I can choose what's best for myself. And so I have that flexibility, which you know, a lot of these larger institutions, right, they've pegged themselves as we are a value fund. So they might see these growth stocks ripping, but like, their mandate, they have to stick with value. Um, or, you know, they, the 13 have the best ideas, that kind of piece where they have some great ideas, they have some great plays, but they have, once again, um, they have to do right by their own kind of investors and they can't put all their eggs in one basket where um, you and I, right, we can get a little more flexible with that. So I think that's really the biggest edge that an individual has right now is just the flexibility in, in a long, long time horizon. I mean, I hope. Yes, I hope so too. And now more tools. Like, because 10, 10 years ago, you were just on your own, right? You were just reading Yahoo Finance or something, and you didn't have any any choice of tools. And so now you're here helping all these different developers build those tools so that you can kind of give them even a, a fighting chance. Exactly. That's it at the end of the day. Just really a fighting chance to feel comfortable with the decisions they're making. I think that's the most important thing ever, right? Where you, you're not just kind of, yeah, like 10 years ago, it's like, oh, I guess I'll, I'll pop this and, you know, like paying eight bucks to trade it. And you're like, all right, well, I hope it works. Um, now it's just like, okay, you know, I've read X, Y, and Z. I've seen, you know, all these comments, these analyst opinions, et cetera, right? I'm going to, I'm going to dip my toes. Right. Yeah, you've got a lot more information and it doesn't doesn't cost you as much. It's funny because that was only a year ago that all the brokerages went to no fee trading. And do you think I think that that no fee trading has really actually driven options because 
the brokerages still can charge for options trading, or that's a big value add where they can make their money. I think Robinhood makes like 60% of their money off of options trading. Um, is that something you've noticed from brokerages that are trying to add that functionality as a way to, because they can't charge for equities trading. Everybody would go somewhere else. Do you think that's another reason why options are becoming so popular is that brokerages are pushing for a revenue source? Absolutely. I think, I mean, they're making it more prevalent. I know like most brokerages, yeah, it's like 60 cents a trade on them, right? So like they're really kind of ramping it up. That's where they're making their money. Um, And also just, you know, you can get that leverage, right? Where why play the lotto? Why do this, right? When you can just, you know, throw a few bucks or more, et cetera, right? On some some options, out of the money options. That's really kind of where it's at, where it's it almost seems like when everyone was locked up it was entertainment right it was like okay like i don't need to turn on this netflix series i can just you know turn on robin hood and then just see like how is today gonna be a good one or am i eating ramen at the end of the day like i think that was what it came down to was just like the entertainment right um you're not spending your money at the movies so i got 20 bucks whatever like let's throw it let's throw it let's throw it out there yeah it's like sports betting yeah it's a replacement. Yeah, but there's no sports. That's what I'm saying. So you're either betting on squirrels racing or you're like, I guess I'll go, you know, try my hand at some options. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> so um, you do you do a lot of uh, do you have a lot of projects going on outside of being a sales engineer for Intrinio? Like, are you working on any of your own personal coding projects you could tell us about right now? Uh, always something in the fire there. Um Right now, it's more on 13Fs, so I'm always, like, I'm very fascinated with, like, kind of, like I was saying earlier, like, the best ideas of who's playing what, and just trying to backtest that out. I know we have our own 13F feed, which makes it great, so I can just kind of pull in all that data from institutionals and see, like, okay, they moved out of this position, they moved out of here, right? It's, like, a great starting starting spot for me, right? It's, like, chasing steam per se right it's like okay it's good enough for these guys and they have all these resources right like let me do a little deep, deep dive um so it's kind of a little cheating per se right but i'm just trying to get like a, a screener per se so that's really one of them um with the finance side the 13f is an sec filing that shows institutional trading like what they're what big the big fish are are buying and Instead of if you can't, it's like if you can't beat them, join them type strategy. Like they have way more money, way more research, bigger team. So let's see what they're doing. Let's see what they're thinking, and use that as a starting point for your own trading strategy. And you're you're screening through that, saying like, okay, which which securities are getting the action from the big fish? Is that your strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Just kind of like top ten across the board, and you know, there's a caveat with that always of like those are pretty well delayed um, by the time they have to file, and so you have to ask yourself like these they might not even hold this anymore, right? Like this might have been there. So I try and stick with firms which have that like kind of longer term horizon of vesting uh, or investing vesting. Um, and so that's really it. Like you look at some like high frequency trading firms on there, right? And they'll put thousands of securities. And they hold, you know, they don't, they're not there anymore, right? Like those are just gone. Um, but like longer term, like Berkshire, you can tell like, okay, he's going to have a long-term outlook there. This is something I can take into account when I'm screening these firms. And so just always interested to see what they do. Um, 
you know, especially when there's a small position, like a very small stock, it's like, this is something to take note of um, because they'll crush themselves getting out of it if they're wrong. So that's always what I like to kind of like really look into. More interesting than being in the law. <laughs> I I did enjoy the law, but, um, you know, I, I wanted to try some other things first. You know, I had a lot of these passions come out and I found, you know, I was looking more into finance, looking more into developing more than I was, um, you know, into law. And so I was like, okay, this is a sign that, you know, I need to go this path. I need to really try this out. But I, I say that I really enjoyed law school. Um, I loved my teachers, et cetera, like everyone I went there with. So it's a great experience and um, I'll be thankful for it. But yeah, here we are. We got to try some new things. Well, we're thankful for you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It was, it was really fun talking to you, Alec. Absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you for having me. This is uh, it's been a treat. Thank you for joining me for this episode of FinTech What the Heck. Thanks to our sponsor, Intrino, a financial data partner for innovators in finance. You can learn more at Intrino.com. I'm Andrew Carpenter, and I'll see you next time for more of what's new in fintech.